share with you some of the insights that God has given me over five years of study concerning the topic of heaven. I think our theme uh, for this pastor's conference, Feed My Sheep, probably came from John 21, uh, the last chapter in John's gospel where our Lord Jesus Christ gently and graciously, it seems to me, restores Simon Peter to ministry after three times denying that he even knew Jesus, even calling down curses on himself if he had ever known this man, and then breaking down and weeping when Jesus, passing by from one phase of his trial to the next, looked right at him, crushed him, and he went outside and wept bitterly. And then after the resurrection, the angel said to the women, go and tell Peter and the apostles that he is going ahead of you into Galilee, letting Peter know that he was welcome to come, that he was still included, but also he was singled out almost certainly because of his sin. And how the Lord graciously restored him, asking him three times, do you love me? And third time, it was hurtful to him, just as he had been hurt that very night when Jesus looked at him in the midst of his sin. Peter was hurt. You know all things. You know that I love you. Sometimes the Lord, as the physician of our souls, has to hurt us in order to heal us. But he gave him a charge three times. Feed my sheep. Effectively the same thing. Slightly different words. Feed my sheep. So for me as a pastor, I think about that. When I get up every week to preach, what is my calling? There are a number of verses that come to mind. That is definitely one of them. I want to feed my sheep. I want to feed them the Word of God. Another definitely comes to mind is 1 Timothy 4, in which Paul says to Timothy as he develops his gift of preaching and teaching, public reading of Scripture, if he does this, he will save both himself and his hearers. So if you ask me what my goal is on Sunday, very practically and spiritually, it's to save myself from hell, save myself from sin, and my hearers, because salvation's a process. None of us is done being saved yet. And so I want, I want to feed Christ's sheep. Those are people who have already come to faith in Christ. They're already, they're already alive. They know that Christ is their good shepherd, but they still need to be fed. And earlier... Jesus warned Peter very plainly, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you, plural, all of you, like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. It's an incredible statement. And after you have turned back, strengthen your brother. So I think about that, that your faith would not fail. So I, I, I join these concepts together. I feed my sheep, I feed Christ's sheep so that their faith will not fail. Now, I'm reformed in my theology. I believe once saved, always saved. I believe in security, all of that. But I believe in a dynamic security. I believe in needing the ongoing intercession of Jesus as my great high priest in order that my faith may not fail. And if he were to stop praying to his Father for me, and if the Father did not send forth power through the Holy Spirit into my soul, if I were no longer protected by a hedge of protection, my faith would fail. I would apostatize. 
I would deny even knowing Jesus, even calling down curses on myself. And so every single member of my church is going through some struggles. Some, some struggles might be prosperity. They might doing, be doing very well in life. Might be newly married or have a new baby. They might be successful in many ways. Others are, are going through trials, severe trials. But all of them face the danger that their faith might fail. And part of the solution to that is my ministry in preaching the Word, that I would feed their faith. And so I believe that faith comes, as Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing the Word. But I believe that it also is fed and nourished and sustained by hearing the Word. So the ongoing dynamic salvation, the dynamic faith-filled aspect of my flock is fed by the ministry of the Word of God. So I want to feed them. I'm feeding their faith, giving their faith food. And what is the food of faith but the Word of God? So I want to feed that. And what is faith? What is it? There's a lot of different definitions you could give, but I like to call it the eyesight of the soul. Faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. The eyesight of the soul. It really works well. It doesn't say everything that you need to know about faith. But Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. So he's directly comparing faith to sight there. And so the kind of seeing that faith does, it's not physical, you know, uh, visible like the like physical light, it's a spiritual light, an invisible light. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things, what, not seen, invisible things. And Jesus said, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Paul also in Ephesians 1.18 speaks of the eyes of the heart being enlightened. The more I've meditated on that, uh, that expression, I think that must be speaking about faith. That by the eyes of the heart being enlightened, you can see invisible things. That your light is given to your soul by means of faith. And so, and I like that idea of invisible things, past, present, and future. And so by faith, we see all the history of the Bible as actually really having happened. It's like we can see the Red Sea crossing. We can see uh, all of those events of the Old Testament. Especially we can see Christ crucified and resurrected. We don't have to be there physically. We can't, in fact. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. But we see him by faith. The author of Hebrews says, we see him at the right, right hand of God. No, we don't. But we do. By faith, we see him at the right hand of God. And so... Faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. And future, when faith has to do with future good things, good things that are promised to us in the Word of God, we call it hope. They're synonyms, really. Faith is the assurance of things what hoped for. So what is hope but something you don't have yet who hopes for what he already has, Romans 8 says. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we don't hope for negative things in the future. We wouldn't use the word hope for that. We might fear it, dread it, etc., but um, we'll be warned by it, but we don't use the word hope. So it has to do with positive things in the future. And the difference between Christian hope and worldly hope 
is that our hope is guaranteed. It's absolutely certain to happen because God has promised it to us. So Christian hope is a, is a feeling, a sense in the heart that the future is bright based on the promises of God. That's what it is. That's what hope is. I just feel it. And you sense it. And you know that the future is bright. Good things are coming. Well, how good are they? Better than you can possibly imagine. And so I want to talk to you about Christian hope. I want to talk to you about heaven. And I think that this is vital for us as individual members of the body of Christ, just as Christians, but even more as pastors, to be filled with hope, that your hope would be vibrant and energetic and filled with light, that you would be just exuding hope, a total confidence that the future is bright based on the promises of God. So that you actually even yearn to depart and be with Christ because it's better by far. So you have absolutely no fear of death because you know it's going to be better by far. And do you realize how vital this is for our evangelism? Because Peter says that you should live in such a way that people will ask you to give a reason for what? The hope that you have. But if you don't evidently have hope, then they won't ask you to give a reason for it. So while you're going through physical trials, cancer, different things, difficulties that, that are common to Christians and non-Christians alike, but you go through them differently than they do. And you're in the cancer ward, and you're talking to the same oncologist that the unbelievers are, but you're just different than they are. And they want to know what is different about you. Well, I'm not afraid to die. I'm looking forward to it. I'm not suicidal, but I'm looking forward to it. So I think we need to meditate much on heaven. We need to think about it. And we're actually commanded to do this very thing in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, 1 through 4. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your hearts on things above and things to come. Summarizing, set your hearts and your minds on heaven. Set your hearts and your minds on it. You're commanded to do it. You are, it's not some guilty pleasure here where you shouldn't do it too much, like eating maple sugar candy. I remember the first time I got some maple sugar candy, I thought it was like any other, any other candy bar. It's not. Just to break off a little piece and suck on it, that'll do you. That'll be enough sugar for a week right there. But I ate the whole thing. It was, a, it was a maple leaf, I remember that, with crystallized sugar on it. And I ate the whole thing. I won't tell you the rest of the day what that was like. No, this is not like that. You can meditate on heaven as much as you want and more and more and more. We're commanded to do it. Set your heart on it. And the Apostle Paul, as we, already, we heard earlier, frequently mixes in eschatology, mixes in a forward-looking faith with his exhortations to pastors. 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, you heard it earlier. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. What does that mean? That's the second coming, friends. 
And what is the kingdom? It's eternal place where he reigns openly as king. And in view of all of that, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, etc. So you're supposed to, as a pastor, be thinking all the time in view of the appearing of Christ. The Bible closes with the book of Revelation, which is foremost an unveiling of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's the apocalypse. It's the unveiling of Jesus. But it's also the unveiling of the things that will come. Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. And so Revelation 21 and 22 is what must soon take place. That's what we get. We get the new heavens and the new earth. We get the new Jerusalem, and it's coming. And so he proclaims this to us, Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So you are to be meditating much on heaven and considering it consistently. Now, there are good ways and bad ways of doing this. Uh, I think yearning for heaven is, is a good thing, providing the conceptions we have of heaven are true and accurate, are true and accurate. Now, recently, a number of books have come out in what Tim Challies calls the heavenly tourism genre. <laughs> heavenly tourism. Isn't that clever? I like that. Hey, let's take a tour of heaven. But they're based not on Scripture, but on something called near-death experiences. Among these are Don Piper's 90 Minutes in Heaven, which sold 4 million copies. I don't know that my book is going to sell 4 million copies. Probably not. Especially not if I give them away, like I'm doing today. Anyway. And also, Heaven is for Real. Remember that one? Three-year-old Colton Burpo's experience of dying and coming back to life. The book sold over 10 million copies, was made into a movie. And others have come along. The boy who came back from heaven has been exposed as a fraud. Some of these things. Now, the whole thing with near-death experiences, I don't doubt that people had those experiences. What I question is that they are true in certain sources of information about heaven. Suppose a bunch of people, a hundred people had dreams about heaven. We wrote them all down carefully, and, and et cetera. So what? So they had dreams of heaven. We have no reason from God to accept any information that these things give us about what the next world is like. It undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. My methodology is to find out what the Bible says about our future world, and it says far more than you think it does. And so I'm going to go through exegesis and careful theology. That's my methodology. I want to inflame your love for God and for Christ. I want to energize your zeal to preach the gospel. I want to make you flaming with hope in a world that Ephesians tells us is without hope and without God. And all the more as we're going through some of the trials we're going through these days in this world. I want your love for heaven and for holiness to inflame your battle against indwelling sin so that you put to death those deeds of the body. I want to give you a joy of where you're heading in this journey. We are designed to be forward-looking. And isn't it wonderful that no matter how great your life is or how great it's been and all of the things you experience, all of your best things are yet to come. All of them. And that will be true right to the day you die. All of your best things are yet to come. So that's a marvelous thing. And what I want to begin, as I assert here today, is that heaven is about one central reality, and that is the glory of God. Heaven is about the glory of God. So I begin my book with these words. For the countless multitude of the redeemed, heaven will be an eternal education in the glories of God. 
The redeemed will be swimming in an endless sea of his glory, touring a vast museum of his glory, exploring a limitless universe of his glory, bowing before the throne of his glory, staring unblinking and unblinded into the face of his glory. And the more that Christians meditate now on this future experience of God's glory, the more fruitfully they will live in this present evil age and the more daily they will add to the treasures of his glory." And that treasure trove of glory will have dimensions and details we have yet to ponder. I believe that a great measure of our heavenly experience of God's glory will consist in His continual revelation of His mighty actions throughout history to redeem sinners from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That eternal education is what our time together here is about. It's the image, the sense I want to give you. It is the reason why God created the universe to begin with. And it is the reason why God redeemed us by the blood of Christ. So the Bible makes it plain, what I've already asserted, that heaven will be illuminated with the glory of God. Revelation 21, 23. The city, the new Jerusalem, does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. So the whole new Jerusalem there, depicted in Revelation 21, is shining with the glory of God of God. It's designed to glow with the glory of God. The city as a whole, the actual streets of the city are made of pure gold, clear as glass. What does that mean, dear friends? Transparent gold. But it seems like everything there is ready to be radiant with the glory of God and to to catch it and perhaps refract it into different colors, etc. It just seems to be ready to glow with the glory of God. But what is that? What does that mean? We use that all the time, the glory of God. What does it mean? So a definition that I've been using that I found helpful is the glory of God is the radiant display of His attributes, the radiant display of the attributes of God. Okay, well then what are attributes? Attributes answer the question, what kind of God is He? What kind of God do we worship? How can we describe Him? They're adjectives. So God forbids us from making artistic representations of his being because it's impossible. There's nothing in heaven or on earth or in the the seas below that we could ever use to make an artistic representation of God. But what God does is he gives us verbal descriptions of himself. For example, he says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, lists of attributes. So we get an attribute portrait of God. And so theologians have gone through and have kind of culled the scriptures, 66 books of the Bible, and they have a list of attributes. I have an attribute sheet that I use for private worship and I use it for other things. They've got 26 attributes. There's not many more than that. Theologians have been working on this for thousands of years. So that's the list that they have. Um, you can come up with lots and lots of other supporting scriptures, but the list of attributes will be somewhere in that order. And so, what are attributes? Well, for example, God's self-existence, His perfection, His holiness, His love, His omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, His justice, mercy, His patience, His wrath, all of these and many others, these are the attributes of God. So putting it all together, heaven is about a radiant display of these things, the radiant display. So the radiant display is those things are shining or put on display before an audience, a knowing audience who can appreciate them and have a sense of them 
And that audience are angels and human beings and nothing else. So angels and human beings are able to understand those attributes and to see them properly and then give God the honor and glory he deserves for them. And what do I mean by radiant display? Sometimes it's literal physical light, literal light, like the night that Jesus was born. Remember, and the angel of the Lord showed up and the shepherds were outside Bethlehem, remember, and the glory of the Lord shone around and all the shepherds were terrified. Of course they were. Nothing like that had ever been seen before. We're used to bright artificial light in the middle of the night, but they weren't back then. They might have a campfire, but nothing like that. And so the angel showed up, and it was the glory of the Lord. But then conversely, when Jesus died, which he openly called glorifying his father, and that his father would glorify him, it was very dark. It was supernaturally dark. An eerie darkness came over the whole earth, or that whole area at that point. And yet the attributes of God were radiantly on display, none more clearly than at the cross. I would contend every attribute of God is on display at the cross of Christ. Like the cross is like a prism which takes the white light of the attributes of God and breaks them out so you can see justice and mercy and love and wrath and all of these things in one place. So that's what I mean by radiant display. And it is the end for which God created the world, as Jonathan Edwards uh, said in his dissertation and written in the 1750s but published after his death in 1765, the reason why God made everything. He wanted to put himself on display. He wanted to show us what he's like. Now, Adam's sin entered and ruined everything. Instead of the human race delighting in the glory of God as we were meant to, we instead worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised, Romans 1.25. And so God in Christ reconciled the fractured and destroyed universe and brought it back to himself. He redeemed wicked sinners and forgave them, and in Christ God transformed the hearts of his people and made them able to comprehend and delight again in his glory. So despite the devastation wreaked by Adam's sin, the rescue of a multitude of sinners from every nation and every era is the greatest display of the glory of God there has ever been or ever will be. It is the, the greatest thing he's ever done. So no immense nebula out in deep space. No stretch of rocky cliffs overlooking the Pacific Ocean. No salmon making its arduous way up a stream. Nor a sun blazing with unquenchable fire. Nor even a chorus of a hundred million holy angels brings God more glory than the redemption of sinners who will stand before his throne praising him for all eternity. It's the most glorious thing. Now, when we get to heaven, when we are there, imagine with me that we are now there. We're in our resurrection bodies. Salvation's finished. The new heavens and new earth have come. When we are there, our experience of the glory of God could be broken up into three categories. God's past glory, God's present glory, and God's future glory in that world. So what do I mean by that? Well, in heaven, at that time, God's past glory will consist in his mighty works throughout 6,000 years plus of redemptive history. God's present glory will be revealed in his person, his face, seeing the face of God, his throne, his holy angels, his redeemed people, 
the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem. And all of those things will be displays of the glory of God. And then God's future glory, the Bible says almost nothing about, but that would be just whatever we do in that new world with our resurrection bodies. I imagine we'll do things. Why give us amazing minds and perfect hearts and tireless, perfect resurrection bodies and put us in this vast world and tell us to do nothing? So if your picture of heaven is sitting on some fluffy cloud strumming a harp, that is not what's going to happen, dear friends. We are going to do things, and there will be a heavenly history. I just don't know what it is, and the Bible says nothing about it. Now, in terms of God's present glory that I just mentioned in heaven when we're there, it's what most people, thoughtful people who have thought about heaven think about. They look at Revelation 21 and 22, and they think about those things, and that's good. Some people go too far. Even some preachers that I've respected said, we are going to, we're going to be consumed with looking directly at the throne of God. Why would we ever take our eyes away from that to look at anything else? I was like, well... That sounds really awesome, and it sounds very pious, but the question I would ask that brother is, then why did God put all that glory in the new, new Jerusalem, new heaven, new earth? Doesn't he want us to look at it? I think we will explore all of those things, and we will see the varying levels of glory in all of them, but we won't be idolaters anymore. We will worship him and thank him for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we'll explore it and look around and see the beauties of that place and discover how each thing that's there brings glory to God. And they will not all equally bring glory to God. Some will bring a little, some more, and some huge amounts. But we will take it all in and give God the praise and glory. My book is about God's past glory. You're like, well, of course, pastor, your PhD is in church history. You want us all to be studying history forever. (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not going to be like that, okay? It's not going to be like what you think, all right? You are going to get an eternal education in what God did. And you don't know one millionth of one percent of what God did. You don't even know very much percent of what he did in your own life. So, you are going to remember everything in the past, but it's not just a matter of remembering. That's where my study began. What will we remember? But it started to morph into what will we learn that we never knew. And that became even more exciting. To me, that's thrilling. What will we learn that we never knew? And so, fundamental to this, I have no idea where I'm at in my notes, and I don't care. I'm just going to use the time I have and talk about what's in my heart. I want you to know that Baker, my publisher, gave me a tyrannical 55,000-word limit. That's like a pamphlet, dear friends. When I brought the manuscript to Cardiff a year ago, It had 165,000 words. That's a trilogy, all right? And most of it ended up on the cutting room floor. (laughs) So I have a lot I could say about this topic, but I only have another 20 minutes to talk about it. So I'm just going to talk from my heart. When we uh, thought about this topic, when we get to heaven, we're either going to remember nothing of our past lives, some of our past lives, or everything of our past lives. Those are the options, logically, right? 
Let's imagine that we remember nothing of our past lives. That would be akin to an entire memory wipe, like what you would do with your smartphone if you want to trade it in or sell it. You want all of your personal information wiped off it. So that would be what I call heavenly amnesia. Now, the advantages of that is you don't have to remember all those awkward things you don't want to remember. Like when I talk about this topic, people say, Pastor, you think we're going to remember everything? Like everything? What do you think's in their mind when they say, when they make that face? <laughs> I know what's on their mind. Their own sins. They don't want to want those things brought up. They don't want those things spoken of ever again. And besides which, they have Bible verses that say that God's forgotten our sins, right? I will forgive their wickedness and what? Remember their sins no more. But do you really think that's true? Do you think God reduces his omniscience concerning you? He had no idea what you did. Maybe you need to understand that verse differently. What it is when it says, for example, God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot, he didn't forget anything. It's just that he acted in a certain way concerning his knowledge of Abraham and Lot. Does that make sense? Or when God remembered his covenant with Israel, it doesn't mean he forgot anything. It just means he acted in light of, the, of that uh, covenant he made. So when it, conversely, when God says he forgets our wickedness and sin, it means he doesn't act in light of our deeds and actions. It's as though we had never sinned, but it doesn't mean he didn't know we did it. That makes no sense. Do you know the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1 that he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man? And do you know when he wrote that, he was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. So the Spirit apparently remembered that he did those things. <laughs> Paul remembered that he did those things. And so the pure, perfect memory wipe of all of our sins just doesn't work. It doesn't line up with Scripture. The 10,000 talents. You remember the king that forgave the 10,000 talents? You remember what that guy went out and did? Choked one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. said, pay me back what you owe me. And in anger, the king called him back in and said, I forgave all that debt of yours because you begged me to. How could the king in the story remember what the debt was and God doesn't seem to remember our debt? Of course he remembers. But what I do believe is that those memories will call us, cause us zero pain in heaven. No pain, no shame whatsoever. Because in Revelation 21, 4, it says there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. The remembrance of our sins will be just to tell the story. It's necessary to tell the story. And without it, how can we give glory to God for, our, for the grace He's shown us in Christ? And the same thing with the other two painful topics, which is our sufferings and the damned, people we loved in this world that by then we will know they didn't make it. And so all of those things. So I, I believe with all of my heart that we'll remember everything and it will cause us no pain and that God will be glorified by that. But it's not just that. It's not just remembering. It's a matter of learning things that we never knew. So what I'm arguing for here is a dynamic view of heaven. What do I mean by that? Well, most of us that haven't thought much about heaven think of a very static picture of heaven. I just kind of joked about it a moment ago, which is sitting on a cloud with a harp. 
right? How long do you think you could keep that up? When you've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, will you want to still be singing Amazing Grace? I don't think there's anything I could conceive of doing for 10,000 years, that even if I like doing it here, that I'd want to do it for 10,000 years. And so that static view of heaven starts to morph into kind of a place you don't want to go. Randy Alcorn bumped into this in his research. He said a lot of people confessed to him that they actually weren't looking forward to heaven. Well, they believed a satanic view of a, of a static heaven. I believe in a dynamic heaven. What do I mean by that? What I mean is you are going to be in a resurrected body, and you're going to get with it a resurrected mind, and you're going to have a resurrected heart. You will, your mind will be pure and perfect and able to do what a human mind was meant to do. And you'll have a heart. You will love what Christ loves in the way he loves it, and you'll hate what Christ hates in the way he hates it. All of that. But you will not be God ever. What does that mean? You're not going to be omniscient. You will not be omniscient in heaven. And I heard a preacher say a number of years ago, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Let me say that slowly and again. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Well, that's the language of omniscience. If something occurred to God, it means he didn't know it before then. So just so you know, when you go to pray to God for something, a friend that's in the hospital, let's say, he already knows. You're not telling him anything he didn't know. And he knows exactly what to do about it. So that's what omniscience is all about. Okay, but we're not going to be omniscient. What does that mean? In heaven, things will occur to us. What does that mean? You'll learn things. What will occur to you? Oh, now that's what the book's about. <laughs> well, let me tell you the, the, the problem I labored under with this book, all right? Books are written the way the Bible's written, with words on pages, nouns, verbs, adjectives, syntax, all of that. This very delivery of truth Paul calls effectively baby talk in 1 Corinthians 13, seeing through a glass darkly. And that's inspired scripture. That's spiritual gift ministry, delivering truth through prophecy and tongues and teaching and preaching. All of that is when I was a child, I thought like a child. I talk like a child. I reason like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as a mirror through a glass darkly, KJV says, then face to face. What's the now and then? It's talking about heaven. So I'm not an inspired writer. I'm just a thinker, pastor, theologian type. So I wrote a book which is filled with words trying to describe what Scripture says about our future life. Heaven, you're going to experience it. God is going to teach you what he did in redemptive history. He's going to give you a history lesson, and you will be thrilled to receive it. It will be scintillating for you to receive it. You remember that vision in Revelation 7 of a great multitude, a multitude greater than anyone could count, from every tribe and language and people and nation, standing around the throne. And they were wearing white robes, and they were calling out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This great vision of all of the redeemed from every tribe, language, people, and nation, right? 
But then one of the elders, 24 elders, asked John, these in the white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I'll stop right there. How long will it take to answer that question? Don't you think that would take eternity to get the full answer on who they are and how they got here? How exciting would it be to study all of the secret missions movements and the courageous actions by men and women to share their faith with individuals, merchants who went on, on their trade caravans and bumped into some people and shared Christ with them, led a few of them to Christ, right? Soldiers who were in the Roman army who came to faith in Christ and then went up and served in, in Britannia and led some of the wild people up there to Christ. You don't know any of these things. I don't either. But for 2,000 years, these stories have been, been written down, and God will not have them raked off like garbage into the dumpster in the new heaven, new earth. He said, now I'm going to tell you some things you never knew about, and you're going to learn. So in my book, I have 15 biblical evidences that will remember earthly history in heaven. I didn't want to just guess at this. I have many evidences, one after the other. How do I know for certain that we will be doing that? Biblical proof that we will be remembering uh, earth uh, in heaven. Well, let me give you some sampling of it, and you can read the rest, or at least 24 of you can read it, because one of the books gone. I saw somebody, came up here, grabbed it. Good job. Well done, all right? Because you were already invited to do it. But um, look at some of the biblical evidence. You remember the proof that Jesus gives of the resurrection? Remember? Haven't you read in the account about the burning bush? How God said... I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. How is that proof of resurrection? Well, it's interesting. It's not an easy answer to that question. But let's, let's go with just the verb tense. I am Abraham's God right now. And I'm Isaac's God right now. And I'm Jacob's God right now. Abraham has a God. And I am his God. Oh, so that means Abraham's still around. Yes, exactly. And Abraham is having a relationship with God. But here's my point. Abraham has to be Abraham to have Abraham's relationship with God. If Abraham gets a memory wipe in heaven, how weird would that be? And it says, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Imagine if you sit next to Abraham in the kingdom of heaven and both of you have received a memory wipe. And neither of you knows anything except the beautiful glory of this world that you're in. And you're walking around like nameless zombie types, worshiping God. And you sit next to Abraham, but that name doesn't mean anything. And you say to him, hi. And he says, hi. And he says, what's your name? I'm Abraham. What's your name? I'm Joe. Let's eat. <laughs> Abraham isn't Abraham anymore, but he is Abraham. He is the Abraham that offered up his son, his only son, Isaac. And God made a promise to Abraham. Do you remember? After Lot broke off from him and went on down to Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord walked with Abraham through the land, and he said, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north, south, east, and west. All the land that you see, I will give, listen to this, to you, singular, and to your offspring forever. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. But Hebrews 11.13 said that he died not having received the promise. 
That's a big cosmic IOU from God. He didn't get it yet. Now, if you say, well, then when will he get it? Will he get it in the new earth? The new heavens and the new earth. So therefore, this earth must be resurrected in some sense. I don't know how that is because the elements are going to melt in the heat. I understand all that. But there is going to be continuity and yet difference, just like our resurrection bodies. And so God's going to keep his promise to Abraham. But here's the point. If Abraham doesn't remember who he is or that the promise was made, then how will God be vindicated as a promise keeper? But he will be for all eternity. He is the God who promised Abraham to give him the earth. And we, as sons and daughters of Abraham, are nestled under him for that promise. And we're going to get our share of the new earth. The meek will inherit what? The earth. But we have to remember who we are. Ephesians 2.7 says that for eternity, God is going to display his grace for eternity. It says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in order that, listen, in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In other words, forever he will show you how much grace he lavished on you. How can he show that to you if you have no memory of your sins? But if you remember that you were, as John Newton put it, a wretch, and what wretch meant for John Newton? All right? It's like, well, I don't mind remembering what wretch means for John Newton. I just don't want my stuff talked about. Okay? I don't mind remembering that Paul was a blasphemer and a persecutor, a violent man. I, sh- I don't even mind that David sinned with Bathsheba. I'm not David. It's good. Just tell the story. But I don't want my story told. You're not going to be like that at all. You will be so set free from you. You'll be delivered from you. And you'll be tell the story. Because as it is, it says in Romans 7, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. A decisive break has been made between me and my sin. That's just not me. And in heaven, that will be consummated. That is who I was, but it is not who I am. Tell the story. And yet, as my book says, there will be no scarlet letters on our white robes in heaven. We're not walking around with a scarlet A or whatever letter would represent our wickedness. We will present to each other as radiant and glorious and beautiful because that's who we are. But the backstory is necessary so that God's glory can be displayed, so the narrative can be told. I believe that the centurion that actually nailed the hands and feet of Jesus to the cross is up in heaven. Jesus prayed for him, Father, forgive them. And didn't he say, truly this man was a son of God? Even if he isn't, but I, I think it'd be marvelous if he is. Wouldn't you love to sit down at table with the man who actually nailed your Savior to the cross? And if so, wouldn't it be good that he knew that he's the one that did it? And that God used that sinful act in one sense because he was an innocent man. It was a miscarriage of justice at the human level, but still part of God's redemptive plan. What about the topic of rewards? You know how much the Bible says about rewards? Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus said that. Great is your reward where? In heaven. But imagine meeting someone that was wearing a Congressional Medal of Honor and you ask that individual, that's incredible. I mean, those are so rare. What's the next question you're going to ask? What did you do? And if he told you he bought it in a pawn shop, (laughs) wouldn't you be disappointed in him a little? Some veterans might want to beat him up. 
You don't do that to the Congressional Medal of Honor. The whole thing is not the ribbon and the medal. It's the story. It's the valor. It's what you did. And in heaven, the crowns and emblems aren't really the point. They're representations of sacrificial service that were done by brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the backstory. And if we don't remember it in heaven, then how is it a reward? And so we will remember the backstory, and not just our own backstories. We'll learn, not remember, but learn other people's backstories. This brother, this sister, what they did and how they showed courage and how they showed love for the Lord. You're going to dive into their stories and guess what? You're actually going to care. Because again, I said a moment ago, you'll be free from you. And you won't just be feigning interest saying, oh, tell me more about your mission trip. It won't be like that. Have you ever met somebody that comes back with a thousand pictures on their smartphone of their mission trip? A really good friend will look at 20 of them, okay? But in heaven, in some sense, we'll want to see all of them. And so you're like, I don't know, I don't see how that could even be possible. It's because you don't understand the resurrection. You don't understand how much transformation is going to happen to us when we're glorified. Has Jesus ever been bored at anything? Jesus doesn't get bored. We won't either. We will have a strength of mind and heart to study and learn. And who will be our teacher? Almighty God. Almighty God. And what will be the ultimate point of every lesson? Every lesson, the ultimate point will be his glory. How he was glorified in this or that or the other situation. Probably my favorite verse, and I'm going to close with this. I've got many other things I could say to you. Many topics. Like one of the topics that really electrified me was the invisible spiritual dimensions, angels and demons, right in this room right now. But you can't see them, and you're glad. You better be glad. One angel showed up in Daniel chapter 10 to bring a revelation to the prophet Daniel, and Daniel was on the ground and couldn't breathe. What if the demonic counterpart showed up instead? What if you could actually see the spiritual force of evil in the heavenly realms that were arrayed against you, if you could actually see them? Even if you could see the angels that were dispatched to, to fight for you and protect you, you would not be able to move. So God gives you the truth in Scripture, tells you the principles, tells you what you need to know. But in heaven, you'll be out of danger. They'll be in hell, the demons. The angels will be there worshiping with you. Fellow servants of God, they call themselves. And you'll be able to see not just in your own life, but in church history. How many angels and demons there were when Martin Luther stood up and gave that defense, here I stand. You think there weren't any demons at the Diet of Worms? They were there. And somehow, God enabled Martin Luther to overcome all that. Won't that be exciting? What a thrill. And that's just one chapter. There's a lot of, lot of aspects. What about obscure people, people you've never even heard of? Remember the widow that put in the two copper coins and Jesus said about her she put in more than anyone else? You know how many women have served in mighty ways and they never got recorded in the pages of history because the histories are generally dominated by males? It's not necessarily a bad thing, it's just true. But in heaven, the full history gets told. And when Jesus said of that widow that she put in more than anyone else, that's a symbol of a whole bunch of unsung heroes, obscure people that we know nothing about that did more than anyone else in their generation. And we'll be excited to learn. I'm going to close with my favorite text. Turn there if you would and look at it. Psalm 111. 
Psalm 111. I'm just going to read verses 2 through 4, and then we'll close with that. I never saw Psalm 111 this way, but now when you think about an eternal education in the glory of God, and by the way, the most speculative aspect of my book, chapter 5, it's called Better Than Virtual Reality, how God will show us history, not merely tell it to us. Now, I don't know that this is actually a fact, but I know this. God transported the Apostle John from the island of Patmos in visions of the Spirit ahead of time to see the new Jerusalem before she was built. Why couldn't he transport all the people of God back in time to see how every living stone was put in place? Wouldn't history be really cool as a movie night every night (laughs) where God actually shows you What happened on this specific day in history with this specific brother or sister in Christ? Now, wouldn't that be pretty cool? I think it would be awesome. Psalm 111, verses 2 through 4. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Studied means you're learning about them. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. There it is. Oh, I'm sorry. That's only until the new heaven, new earth come. Then we'll forget them all. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? Why would he want any of his mighty works to be forgotten? When the psalmist, the Jewish psalmist wrote that, do you think it was possible he was at least thinking of the events of the Exodus? and the great miracles that God did through Moses and the Red Sea crossing? Here's a question. Wouldn't you like to experience the Red Sea crossing yourself in a vision so real that you're not sure whether you're in the body or out of it? That's how Paul talked about his vision of heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Wouldn't that be something to see God's deliverance of the Jews from their enemies? Wouldn't that be something to see the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Christ so that you can glorify him? So great are the works of the Lord. They will be not just for a little while, but eternally studied by all who delight in them. And you're going to learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. And the 24 elders, it says, whenever they fall down and give thanks, they cast their crowns before the Lord, right? What is the significance of the word whenever? Doesn't that imply again and again and again and again? So what that means is pulses of new insights, pulses of learning, pulses of new moments where God shows his greatness and down you go and worship him and thank him and praise him. And then you get up, all right, I'm ready for the next one. Give me some other aspect of your greatness, some other aspect of your glory, and that's what heaven's gonna be like. How thrilling is that? Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the brief time that we've had today to study. Um, We thank you for your word. We thank you for all the biblical evidence of the great uh, joy that that we will experience in heaven and all of it centered on who you are, who you have been for your people, who you always will be because you are immutable. We thank you for these things. And I thank you for this conference and these brothers and sisters and the time we've enjoyed together. In Jesus' name.
Brothers and sisters, thank you for being here for the conference. And uh, before you leave today, feel free to come and grab a copy of the book on heaven, also Packer's essay on uh, Owen's book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ.